0: This is Lecture number twelve on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number twelve. Now let's get back to where we left off. the analysis of the words of that phrase, quote, "The place which the Lord your God shall choose," end quote." A Hlwardda concludes that the question is not one or more, but rather it's whether the place is selected by arbitrary human means or whether the place is selected by divine choice. In other words, what he does is put stress on the verb, Bahar, the place which the Lord shall choose. The issue is not so much whether it's one or more of them, but that it is a place of the Lord's choice. It's not just an arbitrary choice on the part of the people. There are a couple of other factors that Halwarda appeals to to support his position. He says, and I quote him, if Deuteronomy 12 says that all the offerings are to be brought to one place only, think of what that meant, practically speaking, for people who lived, for example, in Dan, way in the north part of the country, that's about 90 miles from Jerusalem, quote. We realized that would be like a family now making a trip to Florida or something from Philadelphia in order to offer a sacrifice. Now, you're going to walk that, and it's going to take you a while, He says it would mean an absence of at least a week to go to Jerusalem and back. What I want to do is finish what Holwarda is arguing, then I'll come back to addressing the carrying of monetary means instead of an actual sacrifice, because that's more feasible for transportation. Then I want to go back and look closer at the whole flow of thought in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I want to suggest, on the basis of a more recent study a modification to Hulwarda's view that's going to apply to that. But just think about the practical implications here. There are a lot of occasions on which an Israelite was supposed to bring a sacrifice. Would he have to go all the way to Jerusalem every time? What would it mean for the Levites? They were to accompany these people to the place of sacrifice. They'd be on the road all the time. They might as well just stay in Jerusalem instead of making the trip back and forth to distant points where the Levites lived. So it doesn't seem as if Deuteronomy 12 requires only one central altar, one legitimate place of sacrifice. It doesn't seem that it's very practical to do that. It could never really have been carried out in practice. You know, from 2 Samuel chapter 24, the place where the temple was chosen was on a threshing floor of Aravna, you know, from Second Samuel 24, the place where the temple was chosen was on the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite, where there seems to be some indication that here was a place that God would set apart. But you could say the altar at Bethel, where God appeared to Jacob, here there was a manifestation of God that gives a legitimacy or sanction since his name appeared there at Bethel, so one could build an altar to him there, too. There undoubtedly were other places, maybe some of them recorded, maybe some of them not recorded, where the Lord would have appeared and that would have given a legitimate right to build an altar there. This is not just building an altar anywhere you feel like it, but a place where there was some divine sanction in some way. Admittedly, it is somewhat vague how that would normally work, so let's go a bit further in our investigation of this question. Well, conclusion is that Israel did not have a law that bound the cult to one place alone, but Israel lived under a law that provided for local altars next to a central sanctuary. A central sanctuary, not in the sense of a sole sanctuary, but a primacy of place, you might say, would be given to the altar at the temple, or previously to the altar at the tabernacle, but that's not the exclusion of legitimate altars elsewhere. So that was what was regulated, that is, the place where the altar was to be built. The Lord would designate that in some way. The material out of which the altar was to be built, and then, of course, the offerings which were to be brought and how they were to be brought, that's what was regulated by the Pentateuchal legislation. So arbitrariness and human contrivance were excluded in each of those areas or matters, the place, the materials, and the kinds of offerings. It was all regulated, and the Lord spelled that out. But God provided many altars to keep his people from temptation. The Canaanites had altars everywhere. The Israelites were living in the middle of the Canaanites, and they had their altars. And if Israel didn't, it could easily lead them to temptation. But to keep them from that, to keep them in fellowship with himself... God provided a place for offering that would be accessible. So that's generally Holwarda's position. What I'd like to do now is go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and look at the chapter instead of just at that one phrase. Let's go down through the chapter and see how it flows. I'll just make a few comments on it, pretty much again following Hulwarda's exegesis. If you have a Hebrew text, you may want to look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1 reads, and I quote here These are the statutes and ordinances which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord, God of your fathers, gives you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. End quote. These are the statutes and the ordinances. If you look at the text, you see, quote, the statutes and the ordinances. End quote. Halwarda takes those terms as basically synonymous, the hukim in Hebrew and the mishpatim, again in Hebrew. He says those who try to distinguish between the hukim and the mishpatim, or the statutes and the ordinances, say either that the hukim refers to principles and the mishpatim to specific regulations, or the hukim is religious, cultic requirements, and the mishpatim, civil law and criminal requirements. He feels the distinction is hard to maintain, so he takes them as basically synonymous. He points back to chapter 6, verse 1, where, interestingly enough, ha-mitzvah is fixed to those two terms. Ha-mitzvah, another Hebrew term. Now I'm reading from the King James, which really is not a literal translation. The King James says, quote, Now these are the commandments, mitzvah, the statutes and the ordinances, quote. The King James has the plural there. Notice what I read. Now, these are the commandments. But if you look at the Hebrew text, that term commandments is really singular. And literally, it should read, now this is the commandment, ha-mitzvah, then statutes and ordinances. Now, Halwarda takes the mitzvah as the fundamental requirement, or basic commandment, Namely, that of the first commandment, which says, have no other gods. It's the basic commandment. You have that mitzvah, no other gods, the basic commandments, and then you have the hukim and the mishpatim as the further outworking of that basic commandment. So he feels chapters 6 to 11 concern mostly the mitzvah, the commandment, which is loyalty to the Lord alone. That's been dealt with in chapters 6 to 11. And now, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1, you begin consideration of the Hukim and the Mishpatim. The statues and the ordinances, the further outworking of that, in more detailed regulations. Interestingly enough, chapter 12 begins with consideration of the cult. And it's that, that the second commandment is concerned with, which says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, you shall not make any graven image, and so forth. So, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2 then says, You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains, up on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the Canaanites serve their gods. They're to be destroyed. Verse 3 goes on and says, You shall overthrow their altars, break down their pillars, burn their idols with fire, You shall hew down the carved images of their gods, destroy the names of them out of that place. And then verse 4 reads, You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. So if you look at the Hebrew text, it says, You shall not do ken, so, or thus. To what does the so or thus refer? It must be to the worship of the Lord in the matter of the Canaanites' idols. And at the heathen places of worship, at the heathen sanctuaries, you're not to do the same to the Lord your God as the Canaanites do at their sanctuaries. If Israel takes over the heathen places of worship, then that sharp antithesis between worship of the Lord and worship of these heathen deities is erased. So the basic idea Holwarda feels of chapters 6 to 11 is to serve the Lord only. And that's expressed here in verses 4 and 5, and worked out in the area of the Second Commandment. So that the basic assumption with respect to the places of worship, which you find in Velhausen and his followers, is fundamentally wrong. What does Velhausen say? Velhausen says Israel took over the Canaanite high places. Remember, Israelite worship evolved, according to him, out of Canaanite heathenism and they just took over the Canaanite high places, and that only later, under prophetic influence, did you have opposition to that Canaanite influence. And what this is saying is quite contrary to that. When you come into the land of Canaan, you're to wipe out all those places, and you're only to worship in the place which I, the Lord, will choose. Now, of course, it's true that Israel didn't always take that command seriously, yet the command was there, that's what they were to do, even though they didn't always follow it. So you find as early as in the book of Judges, they were worshipping at the heathen high places, and they were condemned for that in Judges chapter 2, verses 1-5. to five. But that's quite different than what Velhousing is proposing. So in verse 5, chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, you have, code. But to the place which the Lord your God shall choose, out of all your tribes, to put his name there, even under his habitation shall you seek, and there you shall come." End quote. In sharp contrast with verse four, verse five starts in the Hebrew with Kaim, but unto the place, Kaim is an injunctive like "but," And that's a very similar expression to the one we looked at in verse 14. We'll come back to that later, but that's in contrast to the heathen places. To the place which the Lord shall choose, that's where you go, not to the heathen places. Continuing with verse 6, quote, And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vows, your freewill offerings, your firstlings of your herds, and your flocks, quote. So the offerings are to be brought to the place specified in verse 5. You have these categories of offerings mentioned that are to be brought to that place. Then in verse 7 we read, quote, There you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all that you put your hand unto, you and all your household wherein the Lord your God has blessed you. Quote. The offerings of verse 6 are to be eaten at the place of verse 5. It all flows together. That's to be done before the Lord. You shall eat before the Lord. The Lord is present in that place, in some sense. And there you shall rejoice, it says. The Israelite sacrifices were different in concept than those of the Canaanites. In the Canaanite ritual, sacrifice had a magical character. You attempt by bringing the sacrifice to ensure fertility. The Israelite understanding of fertility of the land is a gift from the Lord, as Deuteronomy 8 points out. The cult or the sacrifices are not magical. They don't produce that. But the sacrifices are to be given as an expression of thanksgiving and rejoicing for what has already been received. So that they are told then, quote, you must eat before the Lord and you must rejoice in all that you put your hand onto, you and your household, when the Lord your God has blessed you. End quote. Now, in verse 8, the NIV, or the New International Version of the Bible, says, and I'm quoting here, "...you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit." Quote. Now, that says, apparently, that when Israel enters Canaan, she to change from present practice. "...you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit." And it seems that that change has respect to the place of sacrifice." Now, the question is, what situation does Moses have in mind that is to change? He characterizes the situation as one that's sort of unregulated. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes, or everybody does what he sees fit. Now, some understand that as a reference to the wilderness period and say that during the time of the wilderness wanderings, that was the situation. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes during that entire wilderness period. Hawarda rejects that idea. He says, if you look at chapter 12, verse 8 in the Hebrew text, literally it is, and I quote, "...not you shall do, according to all, share which anachnu, are doing hayom here today." I realize that's a bit awkward, but that's exactly the way the Hebrew reads. The anachnu, we, Hawarda says, "...the anachnu speaks of the present living generation." that we are doing, the osim, we osim, osim means doing, indicates present, continuing character of the practices referred to. Something's going on right at the time in which Moses is speaking. The po localizes it. Po means here. It's not a reference to the wilderness time, but to here and now. And hayom, which means today, makes it more specific. Today, it says, So, what he says is, during the wilderness period, he feels it was possible to follow a regularly organized cultic practice. Why? Israel wasn't threatened by enemies. They have wandered through the wilderness. Just with a few exceptional cases, they were threatened by enemies. But, the present situation, when they come into the land of Moab, into the Transjordanian area, they'd entered into conditions of warfare. They fought Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon those eastern kings there. You look at verse 10, and it says, But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live safely. Now, they weren't in rest. They were in this condition of disruption. So in that condition there was deviation from the rule mentioned in Exodus chapter twenty verse twenty four, which said, You are to sacrifice only in the place where I come to you. And here you see, you are not to do as you do here today. Everyone as he sees fit, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, sacrificing almost anywhere. So Halwarda feels that the period of unrest began when Israel fought Sihon and Og in the conquest of Transjordan, and that was the reason for the present practice. The war situation so disrupted normal orderliness that it led to arbitrariness with respect to places of sacrifice, and the people were just sacrificing anywhere they wished. Moses sort of excuses it because of the conditions of war. But what he's saying is, that's going to change when you come into the land. Then you don't do as you are doing here today, just sacrificing wherever you please. He says, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. And verse 9 says, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, well, the excuse for the present situation is mentioned. They haven't yet reached that resting place where the situation of sacrifices will change. Of course, here you get into that question we discussed earlier. When would they reach that place of rest? Is it not until the time of David? I think it's better, as holwarda has suggested, to do it in the time of Joshua immediately after the conquest, as followed in Joshua chapter 21, verse 42, and chapter 22, verse 4. And I think verse 10 confirms that. When it says, You will cross the Jordan, settle in the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live safely. And that is verse 10 of chapter 12. The rest begins when the conquest is finished. Look at verse 11. It says, Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And that again was a quote. When the wars of conquest are finished, which have caused arbitrariness with respect to the place of sacrifice, then that command is to be taken seriously. You should sacrifice only at the place the Lord your God will choose. Verse 12 pretty much corresponds with verse 7. and there, rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your men-servants and maid-servants, and the Levites from your towns, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own End quote. on the verse thirteen, I quote again, "Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please End quote. The matter of places is again emphasized. And I think here you see a little more indication of what the arbitrariness in verse 8 was referring to. You're not to do this in verse 8, it says, as we do here today. Everyone is he sees fit. Verse 13, in contrast to verse 8, says, Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please, anywhere you see fit. What they were doing there was just using any altar they found in the unsettled conditions to bring offerings and the altar law of Exodus 20 really wasn't being followed. Well, going on to verse 14, we conclude, quote, "...offer them only the sacrifices, only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you." Quote. In contrast to the present arbitrariness, Israel later must hold to the prescribed instructions concerning place of sacrifice. Now, if you go back to summarize, you have these phrases that occur in a chapter. I've arranged here in an order that starts with the simplest expression first in verses 18 to 26. You get that expression that's the simplest form. You find it in 18 and 26. The one thing is said with emphasis in that phrase, the choice of place is dependent on the Lord's choosing. Notice what it says in the place which the Lord shall choose. So, that's over and against arbitrariness. It is a choice of place. It's the place that the Lord shall choose. When you go to verse 11, there's an additional element. There you get the place which the Lord, your God, shall choose, quote, to place his name on it, quote. That is, to cause his name to dwell there. So, the idea of that added expression is that there's a special relation between such a place A place of sacrifice and the Lord and His self-revelation. God makes that place of sacrifice a place of self-revelation. It's a place of manifestation of Himself. Now, some say the Lord's name can dwell only in one place. Halwarda would contest that opinion. There's no reason why the Lord could not place His name in more than one place. I want to come back to that later, but for the present, leave it at that. Then in verse 21, you get another additional element, quote, the place which the Lord your God shall choose, end quote. Verses 11 and 21 are the same. It's in 14, you get the additional expression, in one of your tribes, the place which the Lord shall choose in one of your tribes. Verse 21 is really the same as verse 11. We've already discussed that. It could be in any of your tribes, not necessarily in one of your tribes. Then the last expression, which is in verse 5, you have, quote, the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to place his name there to dwell, end quote. There you sort of get all the phrases together. Now, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, where all the other phrases are basically put together in one sentence. Now, some have tried to link that with the expression in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, regarding Jerusalem. 1 Kings 8.16 is particularly linked with verse 5 of chapter 12 because 1 Kings 8.16 says, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there, but I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. End quote. Again, I chose no city to place my name there to dwell. And that again is in First Kings chapter 8, verse 16. There are numerous other references like that. For example, in chapter 11, verse 32 of First Kings, But you shall have one site for the sake of my servant David, and the city of Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe out of all the tribes of Israel. So there is that one phrase again, one city out of all the tribes of Israel. Now, what Halwarda responds to that is, in all those texts, the term hamakom, that is, the place, does not occur. It is not the place. It's the city that's referred to. So he feels there's a distinction there, so that those texts don't speak of a place of sacrifice, but a specific geographic location, the city. So he feels this doesn't require centralization of worship either. Now, we're quickly losing time here, but that's basically Holwarda's exegesis of Deuteronomy chapter 12. I think Holwarda really did a service to the evangelical community to point out the significance of this issue, and then to suggest a way of reading Deuteronomy 12 that puts the biblical material in a much better perspective. However... As good as Halwarda's study is, there's been a more recent study, a very detailed study, and I put this in your bibliography as well. Again, it's a Dutch scholar, and it's not translated into English. But if you look at page 6, the third entry, it is M.J. Poles Het Archimedes punt van Pentateuch Critique, the Archimedean point of Pentateuchal criticism, and that's in 1988. That's this volume, and that's a book-length treatment of this whole centralization issue. It's just been published. He really feels he is pushing the approach of Holwarda a step forward. His conclusion about all this that I've just gone over with you is that he thinks it's possible to read Deuteronomy 12 that way. But he thinks it's a bit forced. Then what he does is make a distinction that after reading this book recently, I'm inclined to agree with. I think his approach gives an improvement over that of Holwarda. He doesn't deny the possibility of Holwarda's exegesis, but he concludes that the readings too forced and that what Deuteronomy 12 does is permit only one central sanctuary but does not address the issue of multiplicity of altars. In other words, what he does when he goes to chapter 12 of Deuteronomy and you read, for example, verse 2 and 3, where it says, You shall utterly destroy the places. Paul understands place there, which is plural. He understands that as a reference to central sanctuaries of the Canaanites. Then he feels what flows in the chapter is a contrast, and the contrast is with Canaanite practices. You're to destroy their sanctuaries, and then you're to bring your offerings to the central sanctuary that the Lord will choose in place of those sanctuaries. He reads verse 8 and following much as Holwarda does, but relates the statement to the place of the central sanctuary rather than just the location of altars. So, in the confused period of the time of the wars in Transjordan, where the cult couldn't operate according to normal rules, that central sanctuary was being put around in arbitrary places. That's the way Pohl understands it. His conclusion is that chapter 12 addresses the issue of the central sanctuary, Most exegetes have read the chapter as a prohibition of all local altars, but he says that's not what's really addressed here at all. It's not talking about local altars. It speaks only of the central sanctuary. He says what Deuteronomy does, when you look at it as a book, there are two levels in view. One is a national level. There is to be only one sanctuary there, but second is the local level, and many altars could be built in the localities. He feels that the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12 is stressing the national level where there is to be only one central sanctuary. In other places in the book of Deuteronomy you get this addressed. For example, look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21. This is a hard verse for the Wellhausen School. The verse says, You shall not plant a grove of trees near unto the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. That doesn't seem to be talking about a central sanctuary. That seems to be talking about local altars. When you come into the land and you put up your altars, don't put trees near them as the Canaanites did. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, that's about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, quote, There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not lift up any iron tool upon that, end quote. But there you have an altar in chapter twenty seven verse five and six at Ebal and Gerizim. That's not the central altar, and in chapter thirty three nineteen it says, quote, "They shall call the people onto the mountain, and there they offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall feast on the abundance of the sea and treasures hidden in the sand quote. that has to do with Zebulun and those tribes in the north with Issachar. It speaks of offering sacrifices there, on their territory. So, Paul feels that the book addresses this on two different levels. On the national level, there is supposed to be only one central sanctuary. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And on the local level, there are many altars, as seen in some of these other passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Then what Paul says is that Exodus, you have these same two levels. On the national level, you get provision for the tabernacle, and that's Exodus, chapters 25 to 27. That's where the instructions are given on how the tabernacle is to be built. Then, in verses 36 to 40, it's actually set up, so on the national level, you've got one central sanctuary, the tabernacle. On the local level, you've got that altar law of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 24 to 26. Of course, when you get into Leviticus, you have the local level. All the prescriptions there are for various times of sacrifices that are to be brought. So, he says, when you understand that structure of both Exodus and then Deuteronomy, he says what Wellhausen did was to compare two different levels of Exodus and Deuteronomy. In other words, let's put it this way. Here's Exodus and here's Deuteronomy. Exodus, chapter 25 to 27 and 36 to 40 and then 20, verses 24 to 26, this would compare to Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, and then chapter 33, verse 19. This is local. That is national. Now, what he's saying is, what Wellhausen did was, he's comparing B with A. He's taking two different levels. One level in Exodus, and the other level in Deuteronomy, and comparing them. He says it's understandable, then, that what Velhausen did was to see a contradiction. So, what Wellhausen tried to do was to give these two things a different place in Israel's historical development, rather than see them as two different sets of sacrifice laws. So, Pohl says Velhausen is comparing apples to oranges. So, the result was B was viewed as much older than A, and he explained the difference as development in time. Now, what Paul suggests in his recent volume is that both levels appear in both Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and it's incorrect, then, to compare regulations that deal with different aspects of the cult. What you need to do, if you're going to compare, is you need to compare the same thing. Compare this as local and compare this as national, and you find unity, and no problem— But you see, that does involve a modification of Holwarda's view about Deuteronomy chapter 12. To understand the issue being addressed in the chapter, it's the issue of the central sanctuary, not the issue of multiplicity of altars, and I think this is probably a better way to look at chapter 12. So, Paul feels Holwarda's view is too forced. I think Paul's exegesis does fit better discusses that phrase about, quote, the place where I will place my name to dwell, end quote, and feels that it is consistently used with the central sanctuary of worship. Now, you could argue that Exodus chapter 20 verse 24 says the same thing. It comes close to saying the same thing, but it's not precisely the same wording. Exodus chapter 20 verse 24 says, quote, in all the places where I record my name, end quote. It's very close. It's a similar idea. I think what that's saying is that there has to be some sort of a divine designation of place where to build an altar. But the place where I cause my name to dwell seems to refer either to the tabernacle or to the temple where the Ark was the central sanctuary. Paul tries to work that out and quotes a lot of references with that. In verse 8 of chapter 12, Paul would say that has to do with the central sanctuary, and in the time of war, it's being moved around, not just put anywhere. It's not talking about multiplicity of altars. It's just talking about that central sanctuary, which at that time is the tabernacle. Now, I wanted to discuss the high places with you. I think that the issue was increasingly felt that these high places syncretism is taking place and that's why good kings were wiping out the high places it's not the issue of altars per se it's what's going on at the place of the altars it's purification of worship that's taking place not centralization of worship and i think that can be established if we had time to look at a lot of texts we need to worship according to the regulations that god has given us Let's say you go to the Central Sanctuary three times a year to the major festivals. It's in Deuteronomy, and it's also in Exodus, that three times a year, quote, "...all your males shall appear before the Lord your God." End quote. seems to me that on those occasions, especially, there was a requirement to go to the Central Sanctuary. For others, a sin offering, a trespass offering, whatever occasion might require an offering, paying a vow... An Israelite could go to the nearest local sanctuary, and normally that would be the case. Not that you couldn't go to the temple as well, but you didn't have to go there. The Levites were scattered around. It seems to me that they must have had some officiating capacity at a lot of these local altars. But then they also accompanied the people when they went to Jerusalem at the time of the major festivals. There are evangelicals that have interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 12 as saying there is one legitimate central sanctuary. They'll explain the Samuel passages as being, well, that's before the temple was built, or before the rest that is spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David says that the Lord gave him rest. Then Deuteronomy 12 applies subsequently to David, But, you see, it's awfully hard to work that out because there are so many references that still don't fit that particular scheme. I think often altars were located on high hills. It seems sometimes the Israelites took over heathen high places. That was illegitimate because they were explicitly told not to do that. But they could build an altar to the Lord on a high hill as Samuel did. He went up to the high place, and it seems to be perfectly legitimate to offer a sacrifice to the Lord on a high hill. There's nothing wrong, I think, with the high place per se. It's only as the high places began to introduce syncretism, or heathen worship, that they became condemned. Let me just give you a couple of interesting references. In 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 14, speaking of Asa, you read, quote, "...although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life." Quote. Now, you look at Second Chronicles chapter 14, verse 3, again speaking of Asa, and it says, quote, "...he removed the foreign altars in the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles." Quote. So, King says Asa didn't remove the high places, and Chronicle says he removed the foreign altars in the high places. It seems to me that in Kings you have a reference to the high places where the Lord was worshipped, legitimate high places. Now you ask, what's the basis for that? Well, look at Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 17. This is from the time of Manasseh, but you read in chapter 33, verse 17, quote, The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. End quote. It seems to me you have to make distinctions between the type of worship that was going on at the high places. It wasn't always necessarily evil or wrong. And it seems to me that then, when you read in Chronicles of Asa, that he tore down the high places, and you read in Kings, he didn't tear down the high places. Maybe the way you explain that is that he tore down the high places that were involved in heathen worship. But he left the high places that were used in the worship of the Lord. I don't know, it's just a suggestion about that. But it seems to me that multiplicity of altars was not forbidden, and that the high place issue, even though it's a confusing one, has to do with whether the worship at the high places being carried on there was worshiping of the Lord or a syncretistic heathen worship. All right, one more thing and then we'll stop. Alwarda says Deuteronomy chapter 12 is talking about multiplicity of altars, and what he's saying is the chapters not to be read in a way that says there's only one legitimate altar. It can be the place the Lord chooses in any place and in any one of the tribes. There can be a number of altars as long as they follow the regulations of being built according to Exodus 20, and the location is not one of arbitrary choice, but one the Lord has indicated. There can be as many altars as follow those regulations as one wishes to set up. Now, what Paul says is the chapter is not talking about multiplicity of altars. It's talking about the place of the central sanctuary. He says it doesn't even address the issue of multiplicity of altars. It's only talking about the national level, central sanctuary. And what it's saying is, when you come into the land of Canaan, the place where the Lord causes his name to dwell, in one of your tribes, it's going to be the place in which the central sanctuary is to be located. And so you cannot compare, then, that material that's addressing the issue of a central sanctuary with the material out of Exodus that has to do with a local situation and with places of sacrifice. They were also legitimate places of sacrifice. You're comparing this national level with this local level, which results in creating the appearance of a conflict. Both books address both situations. Exodus addresses the natural situation and its material on the tabernacle, and of course Leviticus, with some of this material on the Passover and various feasts and festivals, and the Day of Atonement is at the national level. The local level is the altar law. So you have both levels in both books, and the appearance of conflict is a result of not understanding that. Okay, let's quit, and we'll pick up next time. That is lecture number 12 on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy.